Computer, initialize Holosuite. Holosuite Media. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Right, we are going to review once again Starlog Magazines number one and number two, but this time with an intent focus on Star Trek. Because we know that Starlog originally started out to be a Star Trek magazine exclusively, isn't that right? That's right. They wanted to do just Star Trek, but they couldn't get the rights to, to it, so they so they um, they decided to they added a few things other than Star Trek while they still had a lot of Star Trek articles. So we are going to look at these magazines from a Star Trek fan's point of view. Previously, we reviewed all the articles that were non-Star Trek. So let's look at Star Log number one. Came out in August 1976. That's the cover date. Premiere issue. Beautiful portrait of Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock on the cover with the Enterprise. Hasn't that picture been used other places? We see it a lot now. Yeah, okay. Become iconic. A variety of titles are on the cover of interior content, but also there's a collector's section that's noted on the cover that says Star Trek Complete Guide, all 79 episodes. William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, Isaac Asimov, rare color photos. So, in the first page, publishers Carrie O'Quinn, Norman Jacobs has contents. Second page gives us a welcome to Starlog. This is a letter to the fans from David Houston, editor in chief. And in this, it says Today, seven years after Star Trek's final episode was first aired, the show's reruns are enjoying a fantastic popularity. I personally know actors, computer technicians, children, college students, people from every walk of life who try never to miss a telecast of even an episode they've seen half a dozen times. There's even one CBS producer I know who would rather hop aboard the Enterprise than watch her own CBS news programs. All I can't tell you myself. How many times I've had to say... City on the Edge of Forever, or Doomsday Machine, or a piece of the action. In addition to presenting the abundant material on Star Trek, this issue will fill you in on the legal and artistic castles surrounding new productions. And it goes on to describe the other articles, but that is so true. That how years after Star Trek has essentially shut down production, people still wanted to watch the reruns and talk about the reruns. Well, that's why they they did bring it back with the animated series, and and now and and yeah, but I mean, this was in '76 when it was really strong in syndication. So we flip the the pages, we see some articles, news articles, articles on the Bionic Woman, fantastic show that we love. Yeah, we love the Bionic Woman. Space 1999, which I say Space 1999, kind of is like a Star Trek Phase 2 that we never got. I mean, it's a little... Um, because it's another science fiction show, and because they did have their, their alien character that was a regular that they added in the second season, and they kind of had some Star Trek-like uh, plots in some of the episodes. And here, once we get to page 22... 
Star Trek Past, Present, and Future by David Houston. It's really not so phenomenal that Star Trek is fantastically popular, that its audience is far greater now in reruns than it was on primetime NBC. And it's hard to see how anyone can be surprised that this show has millions of staunch fans around the world. The real phenomenon is that it ever came into existence in the first place. In the beginning, back in the mid-60s, Star Trek had everything working against it. Science fiction had the reputation of being juvenile, low-grade nonsense. Specifically, science fiction was spurred by TV moguls who felt morally certain they could never appeal to the mass market of television. What do you think about those statements? I mean, that's that's the truth, isn't it? It, it got more... Um popular in syndication i mean i mean when it was first on in prime time like it, like this like it said on nbc i mean that was a network and you know they were looking at at ratings how it compared to other shows and it probably it didn't really do it as bad as people think when it was on a network show but it just it still gained a lot more fans in syndication when it could be on 5 days a week continuously and people could just sit down at the dinner table and watch it or right before dinner the article goes on to talk about the pilot episode, how expensive it was, how Roddenberry formulated the idea of a wagon train to the stars. And that's the type of phrase that today would mean nothing, wagon train to the stars. But at the time in the 60s, those cowboy shows were such a big deal. And so people would know what wagon train to the stars was referring to. There, there actually was a western called Wagon Train. Which, I mean, I didn't even know that because back when I was reading about Star Trek and they described it as Wagon Train to the Stars. and I'm the same Yeah, it right took now. me a while. Like, what, what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. So, so, but the, on the show Wagon Train, the, there were all these, like, like, like a horse and cart is what I picture. A horse and cart, one followed by the other. There were, there was like a train of them. There were a bunch of them that just traveled around. So they, they would have these little adventures in each of these different places where they stopped. And so you think of that now as, as the Enterprise, the way it was wagon train to the stars is because it was one ship that traveled around and had adventures at these little places where they stopped. Makes sense. The article continues on to talk about the struggles of the expenses because to make a science fiction show going to different places all the time, you, you couldn't reuse sets like you could in modern day dramas or in westerns which would be extremely easy to reproduce talks about the multiple pilots that that it had and also had issues with censors because at that time words like damned were considered bad words and it talks about having to make the second pilot and they they uh the network asked that the uh lady first officer and that the pointed eared alien be dropped and gene agreed to uh, to drop the female first officer idea, but he kept Spock because he said they needed to have an alien. They needed to have someone from outer space as a reminder that the, that the show is science fiction, that we are in space. And so that was, I mean, wasn't that the best stroke of genius to keep Spock because it would have been a totally different show without Spock? Oh, absolutely. And that's what we love about Star Trek. It shows how different species can get along and inhabit together. And that's the future of mankind. And the article does mention that they reference the book, The Making of Star Trek, which you and I which both read. Which we both love. Yes, yes. That was such a wonderful book. So let's talk about The Making of Star Trek. What did you like about it when you first read it as a kid? I remember um, thinking it 
I mean, you know, Gene Roddenberry had a lot of quotes in it. And, and they wrote a lot of memos back and forth, and, and that was very amusing. It was fascinating and seeing <laughs> how it was going, uh, how a lot of the ideas that Gene had and the writers had, they butted heads, how some of the episodes were twisted drastically from the original. Yeah, the way that the scripts changed, yeah, you could see it from um, beginning to end and all the ideas about why they needed to change things. This article continues to talk about how there were so many struggles by the third season and that Star Trek had to be axed, but it left an open end to Gene Roddenberry having other series, such as Genesis 2 and the Questor tapes. Uh, those are other, like, made-for-TV movies, pilots that he made, and they never got picked up for TV shows, but they were some ideas he had. And and what I understand about Gene, he really wanted to be someone that was known for making several different TV shows, like Oren Allen was. And Gene never made it to that status. He's he's mostly known for Star Trek, which there's nothing wrong with. You know? But I think it's a shame that we couldn't have more things around that time period that were produced by Gene Roddenberry or created by Gene Roddenberry, because I would have watched them all. It is a shame because the, the other shows really could have been good too. And, and then later, and then after Gene died, was when they did uh, Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. Mm -hmm. But he did, I remember the, the Andromeda show. had yeah. the Kevin Sorbo in it. Yes. Yes. But here's where the phenomena comes in, and we all know this story about the reruns. This article mentions that reruns in Los Angeles are on Channel 13. Where I was living in Connecticut, I watched on the New York station, Channel 11. And it was on dinner time and late at night, like 11, 12 o'clock at night, too. So if you're way, way up late or something, you could watch it, or around dinner time, you could watch it. And that's when the fandom exploded as well in the 70s. You could watch it all the time, and so you could be totally you know, dedicated to it. I mean, the, it was a time when you could you could keep up with it better if you could watch it every day and even twice a day, right? When it mm -hmm. came on both times and you were and and you know, back then you had to be in front of the TV to watch it. You couldn't stream it or, you know, watch DVDs like you can now. But it had a dedicated fan base that would that would be there to watch it on TV whenever it came on. I love the fic pictures they had chosen here. Uh you see Jaden Roddenberry and look what's behind him. Wood paneling. <laughs> you could yes. tell something was in the 70s if it had wood paneling. Pictures of George Takei, uh, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, and even the animated series from 73. And, and for this to come out in a magazine in 76 was great because we didn't have a lot of resources for these kinds of pictures, too. And fans just loved the pictures. And you could, and, and you know, all of us that we, they could just look at the pictures and know what episode it's from, like the one from Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. I mean, it was cool. I like how it mentions here that there's talk of a Star Trek movie. Because you'll even hear the actors say the reason why the motion picture came to be is because of Star Wars. Well, this is. 1976, they were talking about having a movie. Even previous to this, they were talking about having a movie. I'm sure that Star Wars put it more so in the forefront that helped to spearhead it, but there was the idea of having a movie and a TV movie. It could have been either way from everything that I've read. And they could they were also talking about a TV series. This phase is when they two. were doing Phase 2. Mm -hmm. And it was when they were, they were talking about doing Phase 2 that then Star Wars came out. Then they decided to scrap Phase 2 and make it a movie. 
But um, but yeah, but it is interesting to read this article in '76 to find out that they they were talking about a movie at at that time, and I think they had been bouncing around the idea for a while, and and there were just so many ideas and script changes that that it just never you know happened until until after Star Wars when they got more serious about it. I like these quotes. Assuming Paramount doesn't ask them to do the movie for nothing, which may be very close to their first offer, they'd all be very much like to be part of it, Roddenberry said. That movie could mean the start of a real Star Trek renaissance. Just considering the popularity of the Planet of the Apes movies, one Star Trek film could beget a whole string of them, or at least, there being a box office smash, engender that proposed Movie of the Week series for television. Now how great would that be, to have a Movie of the Week for television that's based on Star Trek. Yeah, that would have been Because we always look forward to those Sunday Night's movie of the week. Yeah, it, it would have been neat. I mean, they would have had to, like, like have the budget for it. And if they were going to do that, then why not just make it a TV series? Mm -hmm. But, I, I mean, yeah, it would have been neat to see that back then. But even if it was those specials, like they used to have the Bionic specials or the Incredible Hulk specials, I would have been happy with that. But those were, you know, something like once or twice a year. It wasn't really that often. Mm -hmm. But, it, yeah, true. it would have been neat to see them. It still would have been more often than, than they wound up making the movies, like one every three years. Star Trek really can't die. It's one of those workable formats that allows for telling of diverse stories in an unlimited variety of situations. The Enterprise officers are one of those groups like the Three Musketeers, immortal because of their individuality camaraderie, humanity, and daring. And these qualities are the stuff of spellbinding drama, past, present, and future. We agree. Now in the center of issue number one is a special collector's section, and there's a variety of photos from different episodes, including City on the Edge of Forever, Gamesers of Triskelion. Yeah, it's like it's a whole like photo history of the episodes. And in, and in the photo captions, you've got... Um, Sometimes it's the description of the episode, and sometimes it's quotes from the episode, mm -hmm. and it, it's really good. I mean, this was something that really brings back memories, and and if and if you were reading it back then, it's like, you know, it's like a review of the episodes, and 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 even reading those quotes, I love because because I'm trying to know, I like I would like to know the exact words of it, and there was no other way to know it back then besides like reading the quotes that happened to be in a magazine. Page forty-three. The Conventions as Asimov Sees Them. It's a photo of Isaac Asimov. And it says, in 1972, a Star Trek convention was held in New York. I was asked to attend, and I did. And then it goes on and on to say this happened in 73, 74, 75, 76. So the buildup of Star Trek conventions was continuous, and Isaac Asimov was there from the beginning. And that's neat too, because I—I I mean, I never got to see Isaac at any cons, mm -hmm. because yeah, he died like right right around '93, I think, sometime around there. And, and I noticed he said something about the autograph lines. I think he meant for for himself there was an autograph line that was 30 minutes, which he thought was a long line. I just thought that was yeah. funny. Uh, some of the talks that he gave, there were as many as 3,000 people in attendance. That's a healthy sized room right there. Yes, and we're talking, I mean, this is in New York where the cons would have been the the biggest. They were probably having, you know, other cons after a few years, too. But the, these were the biggest ones in the country at the time. 
and yet having thousands of people i mean it it was huge for them and and also saying that the um, convention chairman had to had to uh, handle more people than they were prepared for every time and and that's yeah it's so neat that they happened that it happened i mean that's how popular the show was you said that in 1975 they had 7000 people at the convention i mean that's that's larger than star trek las vegas when you think about it it's larger than, than Star Trek conventions now, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the biggest one. I mean, because, well, because people can get their Star Trek fix in other ways now. Back then, mm-hmm. this was it. That must have been uh, just totally amazing to be part of something like that. I like what he says. The Trekkies are intelligent, interested, involved people with whom it is a pleasure to be in any numbers. Why else would they have been involved in Star Trek? An intelligent, interested, and involved show. Now we have a focus in on William Shatner. Articles entitled Shakespeare to the Stars by Kirsten Russell. It even shows Bill Shatner on his motorcycle shooting a bow and arrow. And he he was athletic back then. That's what we understand. I mean, I mean because Captain Kirk was very physical, mm-hmm. but William Shatner was was always very athletic. And, and as and as the article says too, he was a Shakespearean actor. I mean, that's the reason he could um emote so well because he was he was used to being in front of a live audience where you you actually have to act big you have to you have to do more of the uh, hand facial gestures and you you have to speak louder and more um, emphatically on stage and if you watch a lot of shows of the era oftentimes that's what happens because you're taking stage actors and putting them in a fairly new medium you got to figure television became mainstream in the mid 50s so this medium is roughly 10 years old for all intents and purposes that you're still getting a lot of stage actors coming into television so it makes sense yeah that the, the actors would um the, i mean bring their their stage experience and they're still going to act the same way and, and this interview with him said that he didn't really want to do a series at first but i mean he he had a family and so it was mostly for the steady job for the money but, I mean, you know, we we are thankful that, that he did that and that uh, Jeffrey Hunter didn't. Yeah. Or the Hawaii <laughs> Five-0 guy. Right. Jack Don, Lord. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes. Again, lots and lots of pictures, fantastic pictures of him as a young man, pictures of him on stage uh, in the world of Susie Wong. Yeah, with, with France Wynn, who Isn't was that in... Isn't amazing um, that they worked together later on in Star Trek? A lot of Troyes, right. And, then we, and he also worked with Leonard Nimoy before Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Closes by saying, Star Trek watchers will undoubtedly agree that it wasn't merely the TV series format which brought Shatner to such communion with the characters he portrayed. Has any of his roles in Star Trek, the plum role in PBS, the Andersonville trial, or the guest shots in series like Ironside, the name game, Columbo, and even his starring role on Barbary Coast, been quite as attractive, as sympathetic, as dimensional, as human as the role of Captain James T. Kirk? And could any stock hero, any pretty boy personality, have given to that role which was given by William Shatner? He played it so well. I mean, I mean you, know, you know, looking back now, okay, William Shatner has had, had other um, very noteworthy roles, like, like Denny Crane comes to mind because Huge. he won an Emmy for that, mm-hmm. right? So. Yes. So and and now because William Shatner has become such a big personality, he's known for being William Shatner more, just as much as he was 
as Captain Kirk back then. Mm-hmm. But he is still always Captain Kirk to us. Then there's an article, Leonard Nimoy, The Man Between the Ears, by I.K. Lindquist. When Star Trek premiered on television, nobody except Gene Roddenberry knew that the show had the non-Earthling character played by Leonard Nimoy, the Vulcan Mr. Spock. Nimoy himself had his doubts about the role. Even in the position of Chief Science Officer and Second-in-Command of the Enterprise, what kind of character was an alien with no emotions? What did you think about this article? This was interesting, too, and, and saying that he didn't have emotions, but then we find out in, in the early episode, Naked Time, Spock actually does have emotions. It's just that he represses them, mm-hmm. and, and that made his character even more fascinating. Talks about his life going to drama school in Boston. And he was part of a theater guild. He was in B-movies. He was in numerous stage productions. I mean, the list goes on and on. Over a year before he started working with William Shatner in Star Trek, Nimoy played Officer Shatner in the early episode of The Man from UNCLE. So again, more crossing over with, with William Shatner. Who would have figured out? Can you imagine them as young men being in different productions and just being having small roles? That would do you think that they would ever think that they'd become iconically connected with a show like Star Trek? It's hard to imagine. I mean, you know that they weren't thinking that back then, and I mean, maybe they were hoping, maybe you know, because as actors, like that, they were hoping they would always become famous. I, you know, William Shatner kept mentioning he wanted to be Laurence Olivier, mm-hmm. and um, well, well, he did gain that kind of popularity eventually. Mm-hmm. I like it how it brings this out. Nimoy himself claims that when he first started his acting career, his work was over-emotional. That's right, and that's interesting, too. <laughs> but but somehow Gene knew that he would be perfect for, for Spock. I mean, Gene had already worked with him and asked him to play Spock. So, um, so yes, yeah, somehow even after playing those other characters, Gene just knew that he would be the right um, actor for this job. Closes out by saying, At college seminars around the country for which he has given talks on television as a medium, science fiction, and other subjects of related interest, he has been greeted with packed auditoriums with thunderous applause. An observer has reported that at one such ovation, Nimoy responded with a grin, the Vulcan peace sign, and the gentle admonishment, you humans have really got to learn to control your emotions. That's great, (laughs) yeah. Now there's a complete guide to Star Trek episodes. What did you think about this guide when you were younger? I mean, it was great because those kind of things were hard to find back then. I mean, and it had a, a summary of the episodes and and the, um, a list of the, the actors who played each character. I, I mean, it was invaluable back then, yes. And I love the original air dates. Yes. Like little minutiae like that, pre-IMDB, I, I was always found interesting. And then it has crossword puzzles. That's the end of that magazine. We'll return to Star Trek following these messages. Mego presents the Star Trek action figures featuring the crew of the Enterprise. Captain James T. Kirk, their fearless leader. Dr. Bones McCoy, caring for the health of the Enterprise crew. Scotty, the chief engineer, in charge of the transporter room. Mr. Spock, the Vulcan, second in command. And the Klingon, enemy of the Star Trek crew. 
Star Trek action figures, complete with accessories, shown. Each sold separately from Mego. Alright, so let's open up issue number two of Starlog. In the top corner, Newsflash, the Star Trek movie. Cover, November 1976. And when you open up the interior page, it's entitled Starlog, the Magazine of the Future. Quite a few newsworthy articles. When we look at this, we finally see the first advertisement for Starlog Showcase. And they're selling Star Trek items, Starship Jewelry, which is a pendant of the Enterprise. It comes with an 18-inch silver tone chain for $4.95 and a ring with the Enterprise, which is $4.95. Original color print, 8x10 is $4.95, and the giant, 11x14, is $9.95. The painting that was used for the cover of Starlog number 1. Article, Two Men in One. Gene Roddenberry. Well, it talks about the life of Gene Roddenberry. There's a society called GRAS, GRASS, the Gene Rodden Appreciation Society. And it says it's the only such fan group that's for a TV producer and writer, because all the other fan groups are for actors. Isn't that amazing? It is. And yeah, and Gene became a celebrity in his own right, just as well as Shatner and Nimoy. He sure did. Mm-hmm. And so this Appreciation Society focuses in on Star Trek, Genesis 2, and the Questar tapes, and anything that his imagination brings forward. Because he's such an interesting person, Gene Roddenberry. Interesting life. This gives a, an overview of him being in, the world, in World War II. He served as a B-17 pilot in the South Pacific. He flew 199 missions and was a survivor of a crash that demolished his plane. He was That was in the Air Force, and uh-huh. then later he became a police officer. That's right. And then he became a writer for TV shows. I mean, a very, uh, very different career change there. Talked about how he was married with two daughters. Having this military background, I think that's one of the unique things about Star Trek is that there are some flaws here and there, but overall you see a certain sense of organization and things are cohesive in the Star Trek universe during his tenure there, or at least he tried to make it so. He did. He he um, looked over the, the scripts. I mean, I mean, of course, he did a lot of rewrites himself. So, you know, as a writer and then as also an, an editor and someone who gave advice to the other writers, he he was always involved and did try to keep his own continuity there, even though we understand that for the third season he wasn't around as much, and that's why it kind of floundered during the last season. But even simple things such as the amount of stripes on someone's wrist, it would mark their rank. Other science fiction uh, properties, there's not consistency. Whereas in Star Trek, you could look and say, okay, that's a captain, that's an ensign, that's a lieutenant. As far as keeping in line with the, the actual military. Exactly. It. I mean, I've heard other fans say, like... He, he, there are so, some flaws there. <laughs> yeah, there some are some flaws. Because we weren't in the military. People who were in the military can just can just go on and on about how Star Trek was and wasn't like the real military and all that. Yeah. And, and, and also, you know how Gene had said that Starfleet isn't really supposed to be like the military? I mean, we, we've heard him say that in interviews, too. But, but it's still... I mean, I mean, if you've got ranks like like captain and you've got your chain of command, I mean, I mean, it it is like the military. Mm-hmm. The article says today, Gene Roddenberry lives in active.
creative life in his mountaintop in a Los Angeles canyon, which he shares with second wife Majel and the beginnings of his second family, two-year-old Gene Jr., Rod. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, and so and a son, of course, has now become famous in in fan circles as well as a producer, and and because he runs the uh, Roddenberry Foundation. Mm-hmm. But but also for Gene Roddenberry Jr. So so he was actually born after the the original series was canceled. He that's he was right. born in the seventies. Interesting, mm-hmm. yeah. So he was sort of born into this phenomena, which we think he kind of rejected it at first, but now he's back into it. He's embraced it now. Yes. For Star Trek to be created, there had to be a man whose inner life was not a battlefield, whose intelligence and sense of adventure were not in conflict. It took a renaissance man. Alright, newsflash. The Star Trek movie. It's untitled, unwritten, and uncast, but it's about to go in orbit by Jim Burns. Um, yeah, now that article said, like, it's, I noticed that it started out saying it was uncast, but didn't it say it's going to have all the original actors? I mean... Right from the beginning, they were trying to get all the original actors. That, yes, that was yeah. the goal. It's interesting how, here, it says it right in the first paragraph. Surely, there's no more anxiety-awaited event in the sci-fi world than the Star Trek movie. It has been an on-again, off-again project. The originally announced filming date, July 15, 1976, came and went. Star Trek fans worldwide began to worry whether or not the movie would ever be made. Like you just said, it was on again, off again. Yes, and and this article says that that the reason was because all the ideas just kept getting turned down by the studio. Mm-hmm. And and one of the ideas because Gene kept putting forth something about finding God. He he loved all the you know the idea of the God machine and or some type of script like that, which God they, thing. yeah, they finally did that with the motion picture, but mm-hmm. I think it still went through different, um, different story details about it. And that was one of the challenges that he wanted to do something that was very metaphysical, something that was extremely thought-provoking, but the studios didn't feel that something like that was right for major audiences for a motion picture. They probably had the idea that it had to have what, more adventure, which, mm-hmm. not, not, I mean, you know, we, they, they want more action. Well, yeah, the, more action in movies now. So back then, maybe it was more adventure, but but they could still do a thinking a thinking kind of movie back then because that's what they came out with with the motion picture. Yes. And Gene wanted uh, some of the same people that he had worked with before. Yeah, he mentioned Fred Phillips with makeup, Matt Jeffries with self-set design, Bill Tice with clothes design. So Wait, he... which, and I don't know if have these people done movies before, and <laughs> because yeah, he they actually gave him different people. They sure did. Yeah, <laughs> and um, oh, and it also said that Gene would be a producer under someone else that was an executive producer, but Gene actually did wind up being the executive producer on the movie. Which was interesting, yeah. I mean, curious. Well, I mean, because he had had never done a theatrical motion picture before. Nothing that big before. That's true. And and this became, and it became such a, it had such a huge budget, too. It was one of the most expensive movies ever made. Oh, but then we found out part of the reason is because they had, they were doing that TV series before this. And whatever they spent on the TV series got added into the budget for the motion picture. That's right. And that. That took place three years after this article was written. Yes. 
so it took some time. It wraps up by saying many Star Trek fans remain doubtful that there will be a Star Trek movie, and Roddenberry admits that the production has already suffered several setbacks. Yet, when asked if he believes we will ever see a full-length Star Trek motion picture, Roddenberry answers quite simply, I'm positive. And again, this was before Star Wars. Mm -hmm. So you know after Star Wars was such a huge hit that they were going to do this. Famous Trekkies. So this is really interesting. It has the things that famous people have to say about Star Trek. Arthur C. Clarke, inventor of the fixed communication satellite, author of Rendezvous with Rama in 2001 A Space Odyssey. He was a Star Trek fan. He says, there is no TV in Sri Lanka, so I have no chance of seeing Star Trek. But I did enjoy many of the earlier episodes I had an interesting meeting with Gene Roddenberry when we were both on the TV show in Tucson a couple years ago. The durability of Star Trek and its fans is certainly the most interesting phenomena worthy of sociological study. Gene did a remarkable job before exhaustion, overexposure, and network idiocy scrupled the series. He scrupled the series? What, what a weird word that is, huh? Scruppered the series? Oh, scuppered, I guess. Scuppered? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he must be a masochist to keep trying. I think I am happier to be living in a country with no TV rather than commercial TV, though perhaps a judicious mixture of both commercial and public is the best thing. Okay, did not know that. Arthur C. Clarke ended up living in Sri Lanka with no television. Yeah, that that's neat. <laughs> and and but of course this one when they're talking about famous Trekkies and then they have some some people here who were actually actors on the show. And they're really—they're just talking about how it just became popular after the show was canceled. Yes, like DeForest Kelly, his comments about how he thought that Dorothy Fontana's script is one of the best. Yes. Which I've been saying that she's one of my favorite writers in science fiction. Um, David Gerald mentions that it was hard writing for for Star Trek. It was a difficult one to write for. And Comment Rod Serling liked Star Trek. I love this. The day that Star Trek was canceled, I could have cut off heads at the network. It was a marvelous show. I mean, that's what Rod Serling had to say about it. Isaac Asimov, the Star Trek cult is based, in my opinion, on four things. Young people of intelligence who are concerned with our world and with their own lives are naturally interested in science fiction, since this is the only form of fiction that deals with the future and with change. And it is a changed future that youngsters will mature. Number two, there was enough respect for science in the program to give it the support of the more sophisticated portion of the science fiction audience who are the opinion makers. Number three, many Star Trek episodes dealt with ethical problems that were resolved in humane fashions. Even a monster was viewed sympathetically when she turned out to be a child, a mother protecting her child. And four, there were interesting, idiosyncratic, and sympathetic characters about whom one's feelings could crystallize. Excellent observations. I like this. Since it's the second issue, there are some commentary on the first issue. Here's this one Bob, from Bob Nacero, Orlando, Florida. I thought your new magazine to be quite a relief after trying to save TV guides in order to have a small description of each Star Trek episode. Now, who does that remind me of? Oh, me. I, <laughs> so tell us about yeah. that. 
I, I mean, I always collected TV guides, and I always liked the uh, description of the Star Trek episodes. And I had, yeah, I used to make scrapbooks a long time ago. And yeah, one thing was making a having a list of each episode in the scrapbook. I mean, it, it was just something neat. And and yeah, and I loved seeing the TV guides and going through them. And I, and my I had a couple of aunts that still had some older TV guides, and I would go through theirs and find any Star Trek episode there. That's awesome. This person writes in, Being a dar- diehard Star Trek conventioneer, I couldn't help but notice the piece entitled The Conventions as Asimov Sees Them. Was not this strikingly similar to something he wrote for one of the convention programs? So apparently he wrote this article in convention programs as well about That's the Star right. Trek phenomenon. It, yeah, and uh, Starlog was able to reprint it, yes. Yep. As we continue on with the magazine, quite a few articles, uh, one being about Space 1999. We've already said that that... I, I, I like Space 1999. If you're a Star Trek fan, I think you could be a Space 1999 fan, too. Especially during this era, because it was very cerebral, very thought-provoking. Log entry news article. Leonard Nimoy in search of... Bristol Myers has committed $1.3 million for filming of 24 30-minute shows to be called In Search Of, which will tackle popular unexplained phenomena with new research and extravagant film techniques. Leonard Nimoy has been signed to host the series. What did you think about that show when it came out? I loved it. Yeah, I used to watch that show every week. It was just it's just a thirty minute show and and Leonard Nimoy was the host and they would have it must have been actors they would act, act out certain scenes that he was talking about about discovering something in the past like or, Loch Ness monsters yeah, or UFOs yeah. or something like that. Did you watch it? I didn't. Okay. No. Yeah, I loved it. Another news entry: Roddenberry honored. Gene Roddenberry received an honorary doctorate of literature degree at the commencement ceremonies of Union University of Los Angeles in June. And that's neat. And I think that that's when Gene was doing um, his college tour. He would go around and speak at different colleges. Music of the Spears. This is a article about collecting science fiction and just, just general recordings of music from movies, soundtracks. But we we love the Star Trek soundtracks. Yes. And that's it for Star Trek content. In Starlog issue number two. Thanks for joining us on this away mission. Please give us a five star review on your podcast app. This helps others find out about us too. We welcome feedback and comments. Drop us a subspace transmission via starpodlog at gmail.com. That's S T A R P O D L O G at G mail.com Music for this episode provided by Five Year Mission Until next time Live long and prosper This show is brought to you by Sweet Media Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs Loading Sweet Preview Program for 
The Expanse, a Star Trek Enterprise podcast. During the whole lockdown around the world, Enterprise is having a surge in popularity. I don't know if you've seen it. That's what I've been hearing. It's crazy, like the Facebook groups, Twitter, everyone is talking about Enterprise. And I didn't realize so many Trek fans had never even watched it. It's nuts. People call themselves lifelong Trekkies who never watched it and are loving it now. I said to someone a week or two ago, I said, look, I'm so glad that you're finally getting around to watching it and enjoying it. But where were you guys <laughs> 15 years ago yeah. when we needed did you when the show was on the edge then ultimately got cancelled loading hollow sweet preview program for starbase one a star trek online podcast i don't really think that's a good idea i order you to do it right now warning the structural integrity field has collapsed this is admiral quinn you will be assigned to starbase one welcome to starbase one I'm Colin. I'm Admiral Aaron. I'm Dave. I'm Steve. And I'm Tom. Starbase One is a dedicated Star Trek Online podcast. If you're a first-time listener, hello. If you're a dedicated decade listener and you've been wondering where the hell we are, we're back. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.